Want to go ahead and read the thing? Yeah. The early 1970s were not kind to Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot. First, his face had gone numb during a concert, and he'd been diagnosed with Bell's palsy. Then his wife moved out, taking their young children, and his girlfriend had an affair with a bluegrass guitarist who occasionally opened for Lightfoot on tour. Following the death of his father in 1974 and a long struggle with writer's block, Gordon Lightfoot said in an interview, quote, the effect of my music on my personal life has been devastating, end quote. In the last few months of 1975, he happened to read a one-page article in Newsweek magazine called The Cruelest Month. It detailed a minor news story, the sinking of a ship in Lake Superior. Even in the depths of his struggles, the story caught at Lightfoot's imagination. Over the next four days, he wrote and recorded a haunting folk ballad in memory of the lost ship. Writing the song helped Lightfoot overcome his writer's block, but his record company saw some obvious flaws with it. For one thing, it's long, over seven minutes in the studio version. There's no catchy chorus and no bridge. No one does anything fancy with the arrangement. And at its heart, the subject matter, a straightforward account of a very recent shipwreck, is fairly dark. The record company finally released it as a B-side nearly a year after the recording was made. Astonishingly, radio stations and music aficionados loved it. The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was a hit, reaching number one on the Canadian charts and number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Gordon Lightfoot went on to perform it hundreds of times and re-recorded it a decade later. His haunting and beautiful song continues to stand as a tribute to one of Lake Superior's worst disasters. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the wreck of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Thank you, Greg. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, the host of this episode. And I'm her brother Greg, the co-host of this episode. We are once again not using fun titles because there are still living folks attached to this, and uh, we don't want to even give the impression of being disrespectful. We're trying to be more careful in our use of fun titles. Yeah, yeah. We're saving them for (laughs) episodes that are on the lighter side. Sure. Uh, Today's episode is a shipwreck. Yeah. And it is both more mysterious and far more sad than you might think. Our main source for this episode is a series of news articles, um, including the Newsweek article, uh, a book called The Cruelest Month. Thank you. A book called 29 Missing by Andrew Cantor and a very interesting mini documentary on Wisconsin Public Radio. I will link all of those in the show notes for you if you want to take a deeper dive. Cool. Uh, I also got a lot of information from shipwreckmuseum.com, which is the website for the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. Absolutely fascinating corner of the internet. Uh, (laughs) Made me want to take a road trip and go visit. Yeah. You up for that? Uh, I'm up for the road trip. I'm not up for, like, wreck diving. Nobody's asking you to dive on a wreck. It's a museum. It's above water. Oh. It's oh, actually well, on the ground. Case, I don't know. <laughs> There's that feels a like kind parking of a lot, and uh, <laughs> you drive right up. You walk right in. Well, what am I supposed to do with my submersible now? Yeah. Save it. Okay. 
We are going today to Lake Superior, which is yes. one of the strangest lakes in the world. The more I read about this lake, the more I was like, yeah. this is an alien planet. It's 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 bizarre. First of all, it's huge. Yeah. It's the largest of the Great Lakes, which are five enormous freshwater lakes in the middle of the border between the U.S. and Canada. Yep. This will blow your mind. Okay. Together, yeah. the Great Lakes hold just over 20% of all the freshwater on the surface of the planet. Yeah, that sounds about right. That is a massive, massive lake yeah. system. Yeah. And they're 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 big and they're deep. The um there are a lot of stories um of them being referred to as the little oceans by people who live there. They truly are like their own separate weird little ecosystem. Yeah. Everything I'm gonna tell you is not something that could have happened <laughs> in salt water. <laughs> okay. Right. Yes. <laughs> And, and like, it's not, like, they have their own weather systems. They are, they're crazy, man. Truly. Don't, don't go, uh, don't go into the Great Lakes unprepared. No, no. please don't. Please. They're very dangerous. They um, can be. Lake Superior, which we are talking about today, is both larger and deeper than its four companions. Okay. So at its deepest point, Greg, yeah. it is 1,300 feet deep. Oh. That is a quarter mile down that is one lap around the running track that's crazy i it's thought it really oh, wow yeah okay okay uh <laughs> i learned a lot about freshwater lakes maybe more than i wanted to know <laughs> and the one thing that stuck with me and haunts my nightmares is that the bottom water of lake superior is so cold that the yeah. bacteria that make human remains float right like the yes. gases and things that would build up and make a drowned yeah they can't survive down there a drowned body come to the surface, they not only can't survive, they can't reproduce. So yep. if you drown and you fall into the bottom of Lake Superior, you, you are there. never going to float up. Yep. Uh, There's just something so terrible about that. Okay. It's very unsettling. Like we're, you know, as unsettling as a floating dead body is, a dead body that refuses to float is somehow more unsettling. It's worse, right? It, it feels worse. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I bring this up because Lake Superior can be an incredibly dangerous place to navigate. Yeah. As you might guess from the existence of a local shipwreck museum. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. That would there follow. There <laughs> have been many, many shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, over 6,000 in the past 300 years. Jeez. An estimated loss of 30,000 people, which is a staggering number. That's a lot. Yeah. That's more than I would expect, right? Like... Yeah, it's Ugh. it's a very high number for a lake. You know, <laughs> lakes are small and friendly. Yeah, not not so much. This it's a mini ocean. We need to stop referring to it as a lake. It is a small freshwater ocean. Sure, that's all there is to it. So the reason why there are so many wrecks, actually, there are two reasons. Okay. So first, the Great Lakes are an extremely busy shipping highway for most of the year. There's just more okay. people out there, more people, more accidents. Sure, that makes sense. Right, so from March to November every year, hundreds of freighters are just racing back and forth to get taconite ore and grain from mm -hmm. the western side to the ports on the east. Okay. okay. Okay, so they're getting grain from Canada, from the Canadian side. And then okay. the American side has is part of the Iron Range. Right. Um, so tons and tons of natural resources. There are stones. Um, limestone comes out of there. 
all kinds of gravel, salt, and taconite iron ore, okay. which is what we're talking about today. Right. So the ore would get loaded on at the very western point of Lake Superior near uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. okay. Um, actually at a little town called Superior, Wisconsin. Ooh. Now, and, now, wait a minute. Is it wait. in Wisconsin or is it just called Superior, Wisconsin? Like this town okay. is better than Wisconsin. I was so excited because I can actually pronounce all these place names. <laughs> Okay. The second reason why it's dangerous is that mm -hmm. there are some unique and very dangerous hazards in giant freshwater lakes. Sure. The giant weather. Freshwater sharks. No. No. Sorry. The weather. Yeah, the weather is. The, the weather real will one. get you yeah. faster than the giant freshwater sharks. <laughs> uh, the weather can change very quickly, and gales blowing in from the west can do amazing things to air temperature, wind speed, visibility, and the size of waves. You would think oh, that the waves the, on a lake would not be as bad as the waves on the ocean. Except that the waves on the ocean, because they have greater salinity, the waves on the lake can get whipped up by, they can get whipped up harder by less wind. 30 foot seas have been observed on Lake Superior. Oh my God. And so have rogue waves, which are waves Yay. that are two and a half times larger than the waves on either side. Oh, I hate rogue waves so much. <laughs> oh, well, you're going to hate this even worse. There's okay. also a wave phenomenon known as the Three Sisters. Three Sisters. Yes, yeah. I've heard of the Three Sisters, and it so this scares is a set the hell of out of me. Three, this is a set of three very large and very close rogue waves that move so quickly yep. that a ship caught in them has no time to clear itself from the first wave before the second before one. Before the second one hits it and swamps it, and then while they're getting swamped, the third one hits it. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not playing fair at that point. No, they're very no. nasty sisters. Goodness gracious. However, okay. the ships that carry freight across the Great Lakes tend to be very large and very strong. Yeah. They're also relatively long-lived because fresh water is a lot easier on ships than salt water. Yeah, it's not going to degrade as quick. So right. That makes sense. Um, the average life of... Okay, the average age of a freshwater lake freighter is <laughs> i just read this okay it's 50 so the ones that are oh, operating wow. now are are an average of 50 years old that's pretty good yeah really if you take care of yourself and bathe in fresh water every day it really shows okay <laughs> okay um so these are called lake freighters or lakers they're also called boats not ships I could not bring myself to oh. write about them as boats, but um, I did my okay. best. Okay, okay. We will be referring to them as ships because they are large. They're big. They're real big. <laughs> they're really yeah. big. Um, so they're not the kind of ship you're picturing if you're picturing a huge cargo freighter. Right. Lakers are like barges with cargo holds. Okay? They're, they're long and relatively flat, right? Yeah, they look like shoes. They have oh, a, cool. a toe at one end, and then they have a pilot house and a bridge. Sorry, okay. a bridge on uh, on the back end. Okay. They just look like a big old shoe. I like the shoe analogy. That works. Yeah, great. I hope that's not insulting. There's really no other way I can think about it. No. It's no. a barge, basically. Yeah. It's a really big, really tough barge. Cool. Okay. Uh, they don't have containers. Like, you wouldn't load them up with containers. They just get filled up with tens of thousands of tons of raw material. Okay. So they okay, have holds, so not, like, shipping containers stacked yeah. on the deck. They just have big holds. 
So they have a cargo hold, and then some of them are open, and they're just carrying like a pile of gravel 700 okay. miles. Oh, God. Yeah, and they get loaded up by these kind of like cranes that have conveyor belts on them. Oh, cool. It takes like four hours to load and 10 hours to unload. They're just really fast. That's really, really huge. Cool. Workhorse okay. ships. Sure. Boats, excuse me. <laughs> so in order to make these runs across the Great Lakes, they have to fit through the locks and canals connecting each lake with the others. And okay. ultimately to the Atlantic Ocean by way of the St. Lawrence Seaway. Okay. Because a lot of this stuff is not destined for Detroit. Right. right or Toledo. Right. Back in the day, those were the huge manufacturing centers sure. um, in the area. But now a lot of this stuff just goes straight out into the Atlantic. Okay. So the size of the locks determines the size of the Lakers. Okay. Right, because you can't have a, a boat that's larger than the lock it needs to fit through. Well, you can, but it, it can never leave the lake, right? <laughs> if you want a traveling boat. Fair, fair. You gotta You got to comply with the size of the locks. Okay. Uh, so the largest Lakers today are a maximum of 1,000 feet long, which is the size of the locks at either end of the St. Lawrence Seaway. A thousand feet long. A thousand feet long. Yep. Wow. Big old 11-story building lying on its side. Yep. Okay. However, in 1958, the locks were 730 feet long, so they were slightly smaller. Okay. Okay? Yep. So in the same year, 1958... The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company decided to build the largest laker in the Great Lakes. I'm sorry, an insurance company? Yes. This is part of their investment in the taconite mines in Minnesota's Iron Iron Range, which is way up in the tip of Lake Superior around Duluth. So an insurance company is mining iron? No. Transporting iron? They're invested in they invest this in a boat system. that transports iron. Okay, okay, okay. So they have investments in the mine, and then they have investments in the auto industry. Okay. And the boat is, so it's leased out to another company that actually operates it. But part of the profits come back to Northwestern Mutual. Okay. Does that make sense? It, it's like it a does. huge corporate spider. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Right? Yeah. Um. So the idea is that this new Laker is going to be hauling ore from the far end of Lake Superior down to the ironworks that supplied the auto factories around Detroit. Okay. And, you know, they would occasionally make other runs to various other ports. Sure. Now, I just told you that this ship needs to fit inside a 730-foot-long lock. Okay. Okay? The final design for this boat is 729 feet long, which <laughs> makes it the largest laker ever built. At the time. I'm, I'm sure there are yeah, earlier ones the now. But... Okay, so but that's so the they kind of it, maximalism we're talking about. They, are, <laughs> they give it, they give it a like, foot of space. <laughs> we can fit a quarter ton of material in this. We're going to wow. make it as long as we possibly can. That's amazing. Okay, okay. So Northwestern Mutual names this gorgeous beast after their own president. Okay. Uh, and she's christened SS Edmund Fitzgerald on June 7th, 1958. A lot of the Lakers have men's names. And they're just like regular corporate, they're like board presidents and, I don't know, chief investors. Okay. So a lot of the Lakers that are going back and forth have like first name, middle initial, last name. Okay. It's very strange to me. 
I mean, um, I, I, I do... want all my ships to be named like Fortitude or yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or 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 Terror, but or no. Princess So and So. So is the biggest and one of the fastest Lakers on Lake Superior. Okay. Big Fitz. That's the nickname. Ooh, I like it. Big Fitz. Big Fitz. That's a number. Uh, well, okay. So the other nickname that I don't want to tell you is um, <laughs> the Titanic of the Great Lakes. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That is don't asking for trouble. Don't let your kids name their little plastic boats that they play with in the bathtub. Don't let them name it like Titanic of the bathtub. Or do if you don't like the boat too much. It's it's not. It's not a good idea. The vibe is off. The vibe is off. <laughs> the exactly. vibe is wrong. <laughs> okay, so we're going to call her Big Fitz because that's a fun Big name. Fitz. I like it. I like it. Uh, so it's one of the biggest and one of the fastest Lakers on Lake Superior. Big Fitz set a number of records over the next 17 years. Okay. Now her normal route is back and forth across the length of the lake from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan. Okay. Now that's the length of Lake Superior, right? 400 right. miles. And then she goes through the Sioux Canals and down okay. the length of Lake Huron, which is another 300 miles. Wow. Even if it's a busy day and she has to wait a few hours to use the locks, the Edmund Fitzgerald can do this round trip in five days. That's I mean, impressive. She is speedy. Throughout the 1960s and the early 1970s, the only record she's breaking for speed and amount of cargo and amount of trips per season, Please say the only records she's breaking are her own. Yes. Yeah. That's she's in a girl. class by herself. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Now, in this podcast, we love to talk about poor safety protocols and inadequate life-saving equipment. Yeah. Uh, but the Edmund Fitzgerald is actually a pretty safe place to work. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. She has a crew of 29, and she has two 50-person lifeboats, one at either end of the ship. Okay. Plus another pair of 25-person life rafts and a total of 83 life jackets that are placed around the, le around the ship. Around okay. the boat, excuse me. <sighs> She's a ship in our hearts. <laughs> the idea is if you're on one end of the ship and something happens and you can't make it to the other end, you still have access to a life jacket and a lifeboat. Sure. Which is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. On October 1st, 1975, she passes both a Coast Guard safety inspection and mm -hmm. a deck inspection. Nice. So the Coast Guard finds that the lifeboats and the life jackets are fine. Yep. But the deck inspection finds four cracked cargo hatches on her upper deck. Wow. Now, the cargo I mean, in the Edmund Fitzgerald is loaded through, I think it's 20 of these huge hatchways. Okay. And they just pour whatever whatever she's carrying, they pour sure. into the hold through these hatchways. And then the hatches close over the top, obviously, so the water doesn't get in. Right. And off she goes. Now, right. the hatches okay. are still watertight. They're just cracked. Okay. So she can still sail. They just say, you know, this is your last trip of the season. So when you're done, yeah. this needs to get fixed before you head out in the spring. Okay. So it and sounds it's like not it's, like a safety thing, right? It's just like the hatches might get some water in them, worst case scenario. Yeah. It sounded okay. like it was... It was um, not, not a big deal. It's not a huge safety hazard or whatever. Just you know you need to get it fixed fairly soon. Right. Okay. Right? Cool. So they clear her for her last voyage. Okay. And they note that she just needs that hatch repaired or those four hatches repaired. Okay. Lakers do not sail in the winter months because the lakes freeze <laughs> and yeah. because the winter storms get very bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, so. Lake Superior in the winter is not to be trifled with. You know, I actually read that some of the Great Lakes freeze to the point where you can have a truck road across them. Okay. Yeah, like you can move Yeah. trucks, like trucks with semi-trailers yeah, right yeah, yeah. across ice, the lake. Is that what ice trucking is? I think so. <laughs> no, it's just like a shortcut because you can go right from, right, yeah. from one side to the other. Right. I'll um, just but that's that's how that's how across. much they ice over because they're no. fresh water. Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's just terrifying. <laughs> yeah, of course. Just don't think about the quarter mile under you. No. no uh, but no. that's when the winter storms get very bad. So those are the sure, gales yeah. of November that Gordon Lightfoot sings about in his song. Okay. So the Edmund Fitzgerald is at the very end of her season after she clears this inspection. She has one trip left from Superior to Detroit. On November 9th, a week and a half after her inspection, the Edmund Fitzgerald is loaded up with her usual. Do you have any guesses on how much she can actually haul on one trip? Uh, 300 tons. Dude. What? No? Too much? Too little? 26,000 tons. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 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 26,000 tons of taconite iron ore fresh from the mine. Um, she gets loaded on time. She sets sail at 2.15 in the afternoon, right on schedule. Okay. Now, there are a couple other ships making their last run of the season across Lake Superior as well. And okay. for part of the day, she's in sight of the Arthur M. Anderson. I told you all these ships have <laughs> men's names. <laughs> the Arthur M. Anderson. Okay. Yes. Now, the Arthur M. Anderson is just a hair smaller and slower than the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the two ships are in regular radio telephone contact. And that's a good thing because a storm has blown up from the south. And by the middle of the night on November 9th, the weather is getting nasty. Okay. Now, the regular route is straight across Lake Superior, um, which happens to be right on the U.S.-Canadian border. Mm -hmm. But the weather becomes so bad so quickly that both captains alter their course to pass closer to the northern shore along the coast of Ontario And they do that because they're hoping that the islands will protect them from the higher winds and the larger waves that are in the middle of the lake. Now, the middle of the lake is where it's very deep and very cold. Right, right. So they're staying in the shallower water and they're going between some islands and the shore, which is kind of protecting them from the worst of the weather. Okay. Now, this is a longer route, but it's safer and they're smart to do it because the storm doesn't pass. Okay. It parks right over the lake and it gets a lot worse. Okay. So at some point during the night, the National Weather Service upgrades the storm from a gale to a severe winter storm. Okay. And they actually advise freighters on the lake to make for the nearest bay or shelter and wait it out. Okay. By lunchtime on November 10th, the Edmund Fitzgerald is passing between a pair of islands and preparing to make a run across the eastern end of Lake Superior for Whitefish Bay which is where they're going to wait for the storm to pass before they try the Sioux Canal. Okay. Uh, the Sioux Canal and the Sioux Locks are obviously closed at the moment. Because of the storm. Because of the storm. Okay. So at 2.15 in the afternoon, the Edmund Fitzgerald makes her way around Caribou Island. And this area is sometimes called the Graveyard of the Great Lakes. Okay. Yeah, it's not a good sign. Um, and they call it that because there are shoals. Oh. There are these giant underwater rocks. Yep. Some of those are within 20 feet of the surface of the lake. Oh, 
Jeez. Yeah, it sounds like plenty of water, like even no, for a big not. laker, like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, she doesn't draw a lot of water, right? She's right, basically right, a barge. Sure. Right. But, but still. But the problem is that the visibility is absolute crap. So between okay. the snow and the wind, the wind is now 50 miles per hour. And even in this relatively sheltered end of the lake, the waves are 12 to 16 feet high. Oh, my God. Okay. So if you don't know exactly where you are and you get into the water that's too shallow, a sea that rough can potentially lift a laker up and slam yep. it down low enough to hit the bottom. Yep. That's called shoaling. Yeah. And it's a very bad thing. Yep. So from about nine miles behind, the captain of the Arthur M. Anderson, Jesse Cooper pays very close attention to the radar as the Edmund Fitzgerald passes the shoals. And he can tell from what he sees on the radar that she's too close to the island. She's too close to the shoals. And can he reach them on on the radio? They're kind of talking back and forth, so none of these conversations are recorded. Right, right, okay. And what he says later is they just have a couple of quick conversations about headings and what the weather's like out there because they can't see the Edmund Fitzgerald. The weather is so bad, it started to snow. Um, it's a heavy sea and it's just terrible, terrible weather. So he can't actually see him, but they're in contact by radio telephone and he can see the Edmund Fitzgerald on the radar. radar. Yeah. You're not going to miss this boat on a radar. Yeah. Yeah. It's that big and it's full of iron. (laughs) Yeah. So that would help. She's visible. Okay. Okay. So 10 minutes later, 10 minutes after she's cleared the shoal, they receive a call from the captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. And I'm going to quote you the conversation between Captain Cooper of the Arthur M. Anderson and Captain McSorley of the Edmund Fitzgerald. This is as Captain Cooper remembers it. Okay. Captain McSorley. Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have sustained some topside damage. I have a fence rail laid down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me till I get to Whitefish? Captain Cooper, Charlie on that, Fitzgerald. Do you have your pumps going? Captain McSorley, yes, both of them. So this is 3.30 in the afternoon, and they're heading from the relative shelter of the islands into the middle of the lake, where the winds are gusting to over 100 knots, and waves are cresting at 25 to 30 feet high. Oh, my God. But they're trying to make for Whitefish Bay. Whitefish Bay is going to be safe. Okay. Once they make it around Whitefish Point, they're going to be in much calmer water. They're going to be sheltered from this storm. Okay. But at this point, the Edmund Fitzgerald has a list, which means yeah. she's leaning to one side, which of course is a huge problem because you don't want a ship carrying 26,000 tons of cargo to lose its balance. Right. But more alarmingly to Captain Cooper is the fact that the Edmund Fitzgerald is taking on water because they're running those pumps. Right. So obviously, if water is coming in, that 26,000 tons is just going to get heavier. And at some point, she's not going to be able to stay afloat. Okay. But Captain Cooper has his own ship to worry about. And at this point, Captain McSorley doesn't sound agitated or alarmed. There's no mayday. There's no request for a Coast Guard. Okay. All he's asking is that the Arthur M. Anderson stay close. Okay. So it's very likely that Captain McSorley doesn't even know what the damage is, like why they're taking on water. When he makes that call to the well, Anderson. other than the aforementioned twenty to thirty foot waves, that would be my guess. Right, but they're washing over the deck, 
you know, the deck is supposed to be secure. But if they're hitting the deck and then washing over, but still, like, if you're getting hit with those kind of, like, three sisters things, you're you're going to be hit and hit again and hit again, and enough of that will be a major problem. Right, but these aren't rogue waves. These are just regular, very just heavy seas. Regular waves, okay. Yeah, the problem is that he's leaking from somewhere that he can't tell where, and the uh, pumps can't keep up with it. Okay. Now, at this like point... That. It's like a race against time. So if he can get across this end of Lake Superior and into Whitefish Bay, it's all good. Okay. But he doesn't know how fast the water's coming in. Okay. And that's a problem. Yeah. Okay. Captain McSorley calls back about an hour later as the Arthur M. Anderson is clearing the shoals. And he reports that his radars have gone out. And he's got two radar assemblies and neither of them are working. Okay. He asks Captain Cooper to help them stay on course for Whitefish Bay, and Cooper agrees to do so. Now, again, he can't see the Edmund Fitzgerald from the bridge of the Arthur M. Anderson. He can still see it on radar. And from this point on, someone on the Anderson is watching the radar very carefully. Okay. And the Anderson's getting battered around too, right? Oh, yeah. They're both getting pushed around by these heavy seas they okay. can't see anything yeah there's like snow wind just terrible terrible oh conditions. my god this is horrifying okay it's really bad and it goes on for so long so at this point yeah. they've been out for a little over 24 hours and it's just been non-stop okay so the edmund fitzgerald isn't the only crew experiencing broken machinery the radio beacon and the light of the lighthouse at whitefish point are both out. Oh, so, no, okay. So not only is the Edmund Fitzgerald dealing with no radar and those leaks and the list, they're they unable to visually see. tell where they are. They don't have the radar right. and they can't even see the lighthouse. Oh, so they're man. just like doing this part of the trip absolutely blind except for the Anderson. And it's not like slowing down is an option, right? If they just if they just were to quote unquote they're drop making like, or, they'd get they'd get destroyed by the storm. So at this point, they're like 20 miles away from safety and they're making between two and four miles per hour. Oh, Because they're heading into this wind. Yeah. They're heading against this heavy sea. It's just brutal. Oh my God, okay. Around 545, Captain McSorley sends out a call for any ship in the area to tell him what's going on with the lighthouse. He's answered by a Swedish freighter, Avafors, which is heading west. I'm going to read you the exchange between Captain Woodard of the Avafors and Captain McSorley on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. Captain Woodard. Fitzgerald, this is the Avafors. I have the whitefish light now, but I'm still receiving no beacon. Over. Captain McSorley. I'm very glad to hear it. Captain Woodard. The wind is really howling down here. What are the conditions where you are? Now, at this point, Captain McSorley turns away from the radio, the receiver, mm-hmm. and he's shouting at someone behind him. He's not shouting this at the Avafors or at Captain Woodard. He's shouting at someone on deck behind okay. him. Okay. And what he shouts is, don't let nobody on deck. Okay. Which just gives me the chills. I mean, it makes sense if you're taking, if you're, getting slammed by waves. You don't want anybody up on the deck. That makes sense. Captain Woodard. What's that, Fitzgerald? Unclear. Over. Captain McSorley. I have a bad list. Lost both radars. I'm taking heavy seas over the deck. 
One of the worst seas I've ever been in. Captain Woodard. If I'm correct, you have two radars. Captain McSorley. They're both gone. And that's the end of the conversation as Captain Woodard remembers it. Like the radio just cut out or nobody had anything else to say? That's the end of the call. Okay. Obviously, they're both have their hands full dealing with this. Yeah, they're busy. They're busy. Okay. But he remembers Captain McSorley mentioning that there's the list, the radars, and the heavy seas. Okay. And he remembers Captain McSorley saying, this is one of the worst seas I've ever been in, which is really saying something. Captain McSorley has been doing this for a long time. Okay. About two hours later, Captain Cooper radios the Edmund Fitzgerald to ask how they're doing with the leaks. Captain McSorley answered, quote, we're holding our own, going along like an old shoe, end quote. Okay. Which just breaks my heart. At 7.20, about 10 minutes after this transmission, and only 17 miles from Whitefish Point, the Edmund Fitzgerald vanishes from the Arthur M. Anderson's radar. Oh, God. It doesn't turn or speed up or get smaller. It's just gone. Or have any kind of indication of distress. It just vanishes. Okay. There's no mayday. There's no distress call. It's just gone. At first, the Arthur M. Anderson thinks their radar is malfunctioning, and they call out to the other ships in the area. All those other ships can pick up the Arthur M. Anderson, and none of them can find the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, God. Okay. So when he hears that, Captain Cooper immediately informs the Coast Guard that the Edmund Fitzgerald has disappeared. A half an hour later, they radio the Coast Guard again. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's nothing the Coast Guard can do. Yeah. There aren't any ships available. Their planes and helicopters are grounded. And they don't know what, if anything, has happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. So instead of providing help, the Coast Guard asks the Arthur M. Anderson to turn around. They're almost to Whitefish Bay at this point, And search the spot where the Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared. In the middle of the storm? Yes. Uh, no. Okay. It's really heartbreaking. It is. I mean, it, um, it, God. and I watched an interview with Captain Cooper from the '90s where he's talking about this moment, and you can tell it still really haunts him. Sure. Uh, he knew Captain McSorley professionally, yeah. and he yep. probably knew a lot of the men on board with him. Yeah. Uh, this conversation was recorded, so I'm going to read you a direct quote. Okay. This is Captain Cooper talking to the Coast Guard. Okay. Coast Guard, think there's any possibility you could turn around and do any searching? Over. Captain Cooper, oh God, I don't know. That sea out there is tremendously large. If you want me to, I can, but I'm not going to be making any time. I'll be lucky to do two or three miles per hour going back out that way. Over. Coast Guard, it looks like the information we have is that it's fairly certain the, the Fitzgerald went down. We're talking now a matter of life and death and looking for survivors that might be in life rafts or in the water. We can only ask the masters to do their best without hazarding their vessels. End quote. Uh, did, Did the Anderson turn around? He turned around and made a brief search, okay. and then he made straight for Whitefish Bay when they couldn't see anything. Yeah. 
you got to understand he's responsible for the safety of his own crew. Of his own crew, absolutely. Which has just barely made it across the lake. And And if he goes back, there could just as easily be two wrecks instead of one, which is something that he points out in that interview that I saw. Yeah. I think both Captain Cooper and the Coast Guard knew that the likelihood of finding survivors was incredibly slim. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, he's responsible for his own safety, his own ship, and his own crew, which is... It's why captains have to make that kind of decision. It's Uh, awful. I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, So what what he's what the Coast Guard is asking him is to go back into 30 foot seas, 37 degree water and in the dark. Like it's just not going to happen. And in the storm, like where visibility is still nil. And yeah, it's still there's still a blizzard going on. There's still this incredible wind. Uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald is gone, it's and the gone. Arthur M. Anderson okay. is lucky to make it into Whitefish Bay. Okay. Later that night, the weather calms down, and the Coast Guard does dispatch a search plane around 11 p.m., but it doesn't okay. find anything, which is not surprising, considering that even though it's not as bad as it was, the weather is still gale conditions. Yeah. The Coast Guard's closest rescue vessel is coming out of Duluth, and it takes 21 hours to get there, to get to the site of yeah. where the Fitzgerald had vanished. Okay. And all they find, ironically and horribly, are empty life preservers and pieces of the Edmund Fitzgerald's lifeboats, which look like they've been ripped apart, just oh. like wrenched open at the bow. Okay. There are no survivors and no human remains are found in this search. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty awful. And it's not like they wrecked close enough to one of those islands that they could have possibly made it to safety, right? If I remember the map correctly, they were almost exactly between Whitefish Point and Caribou Island. Okay. So they were in the worst. Yeah. yeah. So nobody nobody on that deck was going to come back? No. Okay. Nope. Okay. And how many people were aboard? 29. 29. Yeah, it was a crew of 29. Okay. So it isn't until November 14th, you know, four days later, that a Navy plane equipped with a magnetic metal detector was able to pinpoint the wreck site. Again, we're looking for 26,000 tons of iron ore. Yep. The metal detector picks it up pretty quickly. Okay. The Edmund Fitzgerald was lying at the bottom of Lake Superior in 530 feet of water, just north of the Canadian border. Um, And she's lying pretty much at the exact spot where she vanished off the Arthur M. Anderson's radar. Okay. So in May of 1976, the Navy sends down a team and a submersible to look at the wreck. And what they find... Okay, obviously they find the wreck, but right. they also have a lot of questions after this expedition. Okay. So the bottom of Lake Superior is muddy, and it's kind of hard to tell from these early photos what you're looking at because it just, like, visually it just does not make sense. Okay. So the ship is broken almost exactly in half. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So the bow half is sitting upright in the mud. And the stern is upside down and some distance away and at an angle. Now, between the two halves, tons and tons of iron ore pellets are scattered everywhere. Okay. Okay. So, like, it broke open on the surface? Well, what it looks like from the wreck is just, like, someone 
grabbed the ship, like yeah. wrenched half of it one like way and half of the other. It and then, yeah, yeah, pulled and then it apart it. and then smashed it down into the bottom of the lake. God. Okay. Nobody can figure out why it went down so quickly without a distress call. Like nobody can look at this scene and understand yeah. what's happened. Jeez. And it takes a long time for the Coast Guard to really investigate to a point where they have a report that they can give. Okay. Uh, but the Coast Guard investigation concludes that there had been flooding in the cargo hold of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. What caused the flooding couldn't be determined. There's no right. obvious hole in the hull of the upside-down section that they could observe. Okay. But, of course, they can't look under the upright section. Right. Right. And if it broke where <laughs> the hole was, it. you're not going to find it. You're not going to find a hole. Exactly. Exactly. And, of course, it didn't have to be a shoaling. Right. Right. That caused the flooding. Those cracked hatches on the cargo deck could have mm -hmm. let in a significant amount of water. Um, okay. Possibly, you know, the hull is not that thick. Okay. And the Coast Guard concluded that possibly they could have collided with a floating object they hadn't been able to see with their radar out, maybe a small boat or a log. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, but something had punctured the hull and let in so much water it couldn't be pumped out. And then boat just snapped in half well that's what would have caused the list okay 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 it's there's a whole sequence here okay because no that wouldn't have sunk the ship the way she went down right um so as she's struggling with the list caused by the flooding a rogue wave or possibly three rogue waves the three sisters okay had piled on so much water to her bow that she couldn't recover and she just nosedived to the bottom so quickly there hadn't been time to send out a mayday. That's horrifying. It's horrifying, right? And this is uh, a, a real possibility because the Anderson had observed, I think, I think the wave hit it broadside. Okay. Or in a way that it didn't cause enough damage to flip it over or capsize it. Right. But they observed rogue waves right around the time that they lost sight of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. So, like, the rogue wave hit them and then hit the Edmund Fitzgerald and could have sunk No, it, it would have hit the Fitzgerald first. Oh, it would have hit the Fitzgerald first. Because okay. they were ahead, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely Whoa. a very real possibility, yeah. Um, so, and if then, this is what happened, yeah. when the bow hit the bottom of the lake 530 feet down, remember, she's 729 feet long. Yeah. So, the stern end of the ship would have been sticking way up out of the water and... The theory is that the impact snapped the ship in half, scattered the cargo, and then it was all underwater in a matter of seconds, you know, sure. well before any of the other ships were close enough to see or hear the sinking. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the physics of it, as a physics problem, this would be really neat. But then you're like, yeah, except 29 people were killed by this. So it's just Even as of, a physics oh, problem. Horrible. It happens oh. so fast. Yeah, it's terrifying. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it is really, really scary. Yeah. Uh, so the investigation concluded that whatever had caused the damage had not been seen or felt if it was a collision. Okay. Um, or foreseen if it was the case of those rogue waves. Rogue waves come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yep. They can't be tracked and they can't be predicted. Hence the name. The Coast Guard Marine Board and the National Transportation Safety Board both agreed there was no negligence on the part of the captain. Yeah. And in fact, he and the crew had done everything they could to cross this part of Lake Superior safely. 
Remember, they were trying to do this without a radar, yep. with all their pumps running, with damage topside. Yep. Listing to the side. And with and no lighthouse yeah. and no radio beacon. Oh, you know, I mean, yeah, I, it's hard to find fault with that statement. They were doing the absolute best they could under horrific conditions, and it just, they would have had to have gotten insanely lucky to have pulled that off. So that is not to say that there were not some factors that contributed to the sinking. Sure. Okay. So, for instance, obviously there is some debate about why they were out there at all this far into November when most Lakers had already completed their season. Uh, there is that. Okay. Okay. This would have been, she would have been like one of the last ships out there. Yeah. This, this group of ships. Yeah. Boats. Um, I mean, it, it's it's awful, but if you're commissioned to run a route, you that's what you're doing. But yeah, but no, they it, know that the weather gets bad around this. Oh time yeah, absolutely. Like they know it gets incredibly dangerous after a certain date. You know, this is this is them trying it's to slide a, one to more them. trip under exactly. the wire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they they maybe shouldn't have been out there. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, on the morning of November 10th, the National Weather Service took their time moving from a gale warning to a severe winter storm okay. warning, meaning that Lakers were told to seek shelter hours later than they should have been. Um, yeah. Potentially, if they had issued that warning earlier, then the Edmund Fitzgerald could have turned around and gone back to Superior, or they could have made for a port on the um, Ontario side. side. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, is the ship sunk in Canadian waters? Yes, it's just north of the international border. But it belongs to an American company, right? Uh-huh. So who has ownership of the shipwreck site? We'll get there. Oh, excellent. Love mm -hmm. a good shipwreck dispute. Okay. Uh, so another factor is that the Coast Guard rescue ship took way too long to arrive. Yeah, 21 hours seems a bit long to me. Now, there is a huge... Coast Guard station at Sioux. Okay. At the Sioux Locks, the Sioux Canal. Okay. And I think there's also a station at Whitefish Bay. Um, so there really should have been somebody you closer. Know, a rescue vessel. They should not have asked Captain Cooper to turn around and go back. Yeah. Um, it turns out that those closer rescue vessels were under repair. And okay. Okay. that was just like the best they could do. Like it wouldn't have mattered. There was nobody no. in the water to be rescued. Right, exactly. But still, it, it it it's not a good look to not be sending your guys out. Well, asking Captain Cooper to risk his exactly. ship. Exactly, yeah. It, it's the part that just doesn't settle well with me, I guess. Well, I get it at one, like, on what the one hand, is I that get we it. don't have we don't have the equipment to go out and look for survivors. So you do it. <laughs> But it's incredibly important if there are survivors in the water that they be rescued yeah. as quickly as possible. So yeah. do you mind going back out? You know, it just, uh, it, it, they're really, yeah. the That's whole not situation what he up for. is a rock and a hard place. And Absolutely. I understand why they asked Captain Cooper and why he went back and looked for them. Absolutely. Briefly. But uh, ideally just, there would have been a Coast Guard rescue vessel that was there that they would have sent out. Yeah. It's a terrible situation. It is. Oh. Um, okay. So also... The radio beacon and the light at Whitefish Point weren't sturdy yeah. enough to operate in this much kind of, of a storm. Okay. Yeah, and when do you need a lighthouse and a radio beacon? In the middle of a bad storm is usually a, a good time to have them, yeah. That's what I shoot for, yeah. 
Uh, and the repairs to those took hours. Like that lighthouse was not functional again until, you know, the storm was dying down. Oh, jeez. Okay, finally, Captain McSorley was known to be a captain who kept his schedule and yep. tended to drive the Edmund Fitzgerald harder than perhaps another captain would have been. Okay. So what the investigation said was that none of those things caused the wreck, but each has been pointed at as a contributing factor. So yeah. as with a lot okay. of the things we talk about, nobody's really to blame. Sure. Like, really, it's the storm that yeah. did it. Yeah. The, yeah. That's, that's fair right there. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. Okay. Over the years, the mystery of how and why the sinking had occurred became a research topic, as well as a desire for closure on the part of the 29 lost crewmen's surviving family members. Sure. Because the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in fresh cold water, the wreck was still in pristine condition when a dive team visited in 1994. Okay. So if you're used to looking at shipwrecks like the Titanic, which are mm -hmm. all kind of crusty and corroded and, yep. you know, falling a Falling apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the pictures of the Edmund Fitzgerald are really <laughs> eerie. Unnerving, yeah. Deeply uh. unnerving. I can't tell you how unsettling they are. After <laughs> 19 years in the water, her paint is still fresh. You can still see the colors of her paint. Wow. And you can easily read her name on both the bow and the stern sections. Okay. Um, the bridge windows are intact. You can see through them. What? Ropes and lines are still coiled on the deck, and some of the hatches are still closed. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, she has a huge uh, beacon. She has, like, a radio mast on the, on the prow of the ship, and it okay. has light bulbs in it. The light bulbs are still intact. Even um, under the pressure? That's, yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and this dive team was actually able to locate the ship's bell. They also oh, cool. took pictures okay. of a sweater and a life jacket lying in the mud and they're both perfectly preserved uh, um yeah I, I gotta ask did they did they find any remains no they did not okay so at the request of the victim's families the bell was recovered in another expedition in 1995 on the 20th anniversary of the shipwreck okay it was cleaned, etched with each of the 29 crew members' names, and given to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, where it is still on display. It is Good. rung annually on the anniversary of the sinking uh, 30 times, 29 times for each of the lost crew, and, and once more for all the shipwreck victims in the Great Lakes. That's, that's really nice. Yeah. So you asked about human remains. No human remains were ever recovered from the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. It is likely that the crew were inside when she sank and that their remains are still inside the intact portions of the bow and stern. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, and this makes them unrecoverable. Nobody yeah, nobody's going inside there. there. No. Given the advancements in deep water diving and the insatiable curiosity of humans to poke around in shipwrecks, <laughs> um, in yep. 1995, the families petitioned the Canadian government to declare the wreck a grave site. And it is oh. now protected under the Ontario Heritage Act, yes. making it illegal to dive the wreck without an archaeological permit. Yes. You can't even take uh, sonar scans of it without a permit. Yeah, you have to have a permit. Yep. That's um, cool. Good for but them. But actually, you know like, good for them. it was right at the point where scuba diving was getting really good. And okay. divers, two divers actually made it down to the wreck and touched it. Whoa. Yeah. In, with scuba gear? Yeah. 
Yikes. Yeah. So what the families were trying to do was prevent um, tourism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk uh, about the Andrea Doria and how yeah, aggressively exactly. that wreck has dived. They don't want it to turn into something like no, that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Gordon Lightfoot continues considers the song he wrote about the sinking to be the best one he's ever written. Yeah, I agree. It's much better than his other songs. I can, I uh, just straight up. I promise I will listen to it after we're done recording, but I've never actually heard this song. Oh man. I've it's never so heard this beautiful. Song. Okay. It's, it's a dirge. It's a funeral sure. song. Okay. Um, but it's really haunting and beautiful. All right. I'm going to, I love it. it. I'm going to check it out. Um, in March 2010, Gordon Lightfoot adjusted one of the lyrics after a new finding came out about the cargo hatchways. Okay. Um, and he also changed part of the song. He sings about a musty old church, and someone wrote him and said, that church isn't musty. It smells very nice. And he, <laughs> he changed that lyric as well, which I thought was really sweet. Good for him. Um, you know what? Good for him. So the copyrighted version of the lyrics stays the same, but he performs it with the updated lyrics. Good for him. The Arthur M. Anderson is still in active service on the Great Lakes at the age of 71 years old. Wow. Lake freighters really do last for a long time. Sure. Now, does the Arthur M. Anderson have a cool nickname? Like, is it Big Art? or? If it does, I Andy? didn't hear about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I want it to have a, a cool nickname. Yeah. And that is the story of the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, that is utterly fascinating as well as just very sad because, you know, I hate those situations where the people pretty much do everything that they're supposed to do and everybody still dies. You know what they I mean? They almost made it. They and they almost made it. Made it 17 yeah. miles. Ugh. It's a really heartbreaking story. Yeah. So, how many shipwrecks are, like, this is a weird question to ask, but how many shipwrecks do we know of that have, that are in Lake Superior that have this level of academic interest in, like, are there other shipwrecks in Lake Superior that have been studied to the degree that the Edmund Fitzgerald has been? Yeah, of course, because remember, it's freshwater. It's, yeah. um, it preserves really ships, well. especially wooden ships. Um, but it's also really super deep, so I'd imagine it's really hard to get research going on some of these. Nobody's going down to the very deep part okay. of Lake Superior. I don't think. Nobody okay. that I found. Okay. Um, there are shipwrecks down there, but they're not, they're not studied. And Okay, so there's a lot of kind of marine archaeology interest Okay. In some of the older ships, and every now and then they'll turn up one that has been missing for a long time. Cool. Um, okay. But in the early in the early days, you know, the records weren't as precise <laughs> precise as what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the Edmund sure. Fitzgerald was the last big wreck to happen in this area. Okay. Um, Have so there I feel been like she's any... she's really the the modern example of this, but. You know, gotcha. going back 300 years, there are... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Many, many wrecks in this okay. area. Yeah. All of which are creepily preserved at the bottom. Depending on the condition they were when they got down there and depending sure. on how the sediment has treated them over okay. the years. Yeah. But yeah, every once in a while, someone goes down and turns up a new wreck. And the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum has some really fascinating 
uh, studies going. And I think the local universities also have different programs about. I'm definitely going to check. Underwater archaeology. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It sounds fascinating. Um, I guess the question that, that really jumped out at me was apart from them completely like turning around before the storm really hit and staying in dock or whatever. Mm -hmm. Really, it doesn't sound like there was anything else they could have done differently. They could have stayed on the Ontario side, um, but there's no bay. They would have just been in among those islands and shoals. So they would have been been... riding it out among that instead of in the calm Right, but with those kind of navigational hazards. Yeah. um, So that wouldn't have been better. Right. I mean, that wouldn't have been a better I mean, choice. There's no good choices past no, a certain exactly. point yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing they could have done. No, they exa- couldn't go for the for the locks. That's they the impression closed. I was getting. Is like that they just they um, did everything they were supposed to do, and it just it, there was after a certain point there really wasn't much they could have done to. The to heartbreaking this. thing to me is that the thing that they did was to stick close to the Arthur M. Anderson. Yeah. Which is really yeah. the only thing they could have done. Um, yeah. And if they hadn't done that, then they would have gone down and nobody would have known nobody would where, know. yeah, where exactly. to look. You know? Yeah. Uh, it just, you know. Yeah, it's sad. It's just really it's sad. It's a really sad story. Yeah. Um, and it's not that old. You no, know, 1975. Was, yeah. 1975 was not that long ago. So yeah. these people still have living descendants. Sure. Um, in some places, some of their widows are still alive. So it's it's very much a a more modern story than we than Usually we sometimes do. talk yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Here on Relative Disasters, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Speaking of getting things wrong, I have some feedback. Housekeeping. Yeah. Please. Yeah. This one's one's on me. So uh, after speaking with an eminent historian, I realized that I could have I could have stated a few things uh, more clearly in the Erfurt latrine disaster. Uh, First of all, the the major factual error is that Operation Barbarossa was the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, not the not the Blitzkrieg, which I I I'm sorry, everybody. Wow, Greg. I know. Wow. I know that was a big one. Uh, the other one is to sort of clear up why Heinrich had the title of the Holy Roman Emperor and why that wasn't as big a deal as the king of, he was king of the Romans and not right. king of the Germans. So <clears throat> at this time, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. It was a what? sort of, it was a sort of vestigial title that had been, I don't want to say invented by and for Charlemagne the Great. 
but mm-hmm. it, it may as well have been. Charlemagne was attempting to tie much more legitimacy to his reign as king of the Franks. Yeah, he did a little branding. He did some branding, and he worked a deal out with the Pope to have himself declared Holy Roman Emperor on top of everything else. And that title sort of passed down as the king of the Franks became Mm -hmm. uh, the king of, you know, more of the German kingdoms as as the German kingdom shrunk and then re-expanded and then shrunk again, and then re-expanded under Barbarossa, and then uh, you know reached sort of their apex uh, before shrinking again and expanding again. And this is all fascinating to like three medieval historical people. But uh, this this historian saw fit to point out that I had I had not been clear on that. So mm-hmm. uh, thanks, Dad, and uh, we will uh, hopefully do better next episode. Yeah, I. But- <laughs> You're so disappointed in me, I can tell. (laughs) No, it's just, you know, we make this podcast. We do our best. Um, (laughs) Our listeners are lovely to us. They're so good to us. And when they have... When they have critiques, they say things like, "We, I love your podcast. They make a little sandwich. I love your podcast. You got this wrong. I love your podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how they give... Criticism. And you know what? That is it's not wonderful. how our father does it. No, no. Our father he believes just in uh, He's character. a very direct man. Yep. He builds character. That's what he does. <laughs> builds character. Love you, Dad. <laughs> Love you so much. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a good discussion. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I heartfelt, uh, uh, heartfeelingly, I, whatever. I apologize wholeheartedly for uh, screwing up the Ar- Operation Barbarossa. Uh, but better that's really i know that was a big one on me but as we you know say nazis ruin everything so it's true anyway so that's that's all i've got from from my end uh do you have any housekeeping um i just wanted to say thank you we got some really lovely comments after the last episode that we put up Um, oh abavan yes thank you very much to the folks who took some time to write into us because that was that was a tough one yeah so we really appreciate your your uh, good thoughts, good vibes. Yeah. And especially thank you from the listeners of Wales. I think you did a great job with that episode. That was a tough one. Well. Uh, let's use that as a segue. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange dangerous and interesting event from history my brother has selected our next disaster what's it going to be greg well uh edmund fitzgerald was in the 1970s we're actually going to the 1980s slash early 1990s for the next one Ooh, the modern times we're going all the way to scenic new jersey okay uh where we are going to take a look at what happens when reagan era economic and uh, free market principles run headlong into the safety protocols of any amusement park. Oh dear. Oh, We're going to be taking going. a look at the incredible and incredibly bizarre story of Action Park. I have been waiting for you to cover this. I can't do it justice. Ah. Uh, So I am super pleased that you're going to talk about that. All right. That sounds amazing. Can't wait. And I will see you next week.